0: If there's any Texans or people sympathetic to Texas in the audience this morning, please, one, two. Okay. Um, you may be a little offended, um, but I love you and I hope you'll still love me. And by the way, what, what would offend you was not true. All right. So about Texas or about a famous Texan. Um, we, when we're talking about do-overs. Let let me just remind you of the story which is probably not taught as much in American history as it is in Texan history. That's the Alamo. And it's 1836. Colonel William Barrett Travis commands a ragtag army of only 189 patriots. Isn't that called more of a platoon? Um, Who were defending the Alamo against 4,000 Mexican troops commanded by General Santa Ana. And they were just... You know, they weren't ragtag. They had uniforms. They were that uh, professional. So um, uh, General Santa Ana delivers an ultimatum to those in the Alamo, surrender or die. And uh, Travis is said then to have assembled his weary uh, uh, and outnumbered men. And in a voice trembling with emotion, he explained the hopelessness of their situation. But if they stayed, he said, we can give more time. We can give more time um, to um, Sam Houston so that he can build his army and eventually defeat Santa Ana. So then he, uh, uh, he took out his saber and he drew that famous line in the sand and he said, this is what he's reported to have said, those prepared to give their lives in freedom's cause come over to me. And 187 went. The 188th was already on that side. That was Travis. And the 189th was Colonel Jim Bowie, who had pneumonia, and he asked to be carried across. And they, they held out for 12 more days. And so we continue to use that phrase, uh, remember the Alamo, for this 189 men who were prepared to give their lives in freedom's cause and they went over the line and didn't cross it back. Now, let me throw out a more human expression. Supposing Colonel William Travis looked at the situation and said, thank you, men, but I've just had them get my horse and I'm, please stay, stay as long as you want. But I'm going. My wife's due to have a baby soon. Uh, more than that, uh, I've ordered, you know, on my cell phone on my, my smartphone a latte just down in Nacogdoches and I'm on my way. You see, we would call him no, more than a hypocrite. We would call him asking more of other people than he's asking for himself. We would say, How dare you stand in front of the people and say you're going to stand with them? How dare you say, Cross over this line onto my side and then you cross back? Here in the United States, we cherish our heroes, but we hate our cowards. And he would not have been a hero, Colonel Travis. He would have been a coward. And the Alamo wouldn't have stood for, you know, 12 days. Uh, More than that, the Mexican border would be in South Oklahoma, and as one Texan told me this morning, it'd be five flags over Texas, not six. Um, We're going to look this morning not at the hero, but we're going to look this morning at the difference the resurrection makes in a coward. And you know that person. He's so famous, Simon Peter. We all know about him. We all know about his account at the end of uh, John uh, John chapter 21, that he truly is an utter failure. And if you just think about those last 18 hours of, of Jesus' life, was there anything that Peter did that he could be proud of? And the answer is, I haven't found one yet. I, I haven't found a clue of anything there. Let me go over the the list in in terms of a do-over for him. Those last 18 hours could be very, very important to do over. He refused to let Jesus wash his feet. He promised to protect Jesus to his own death. He clumsily sliced off the ear of the temple guard when he was aiming for his gut. Uh, He abandoned Jesus and ran away so the guards would not arrest him. And then three times in that evening before Jesus is crucified early in the morning, he denies that he even knows Jesus. Now let's move forward. Three days later, he's totally confused by the empty tomb, even though Jesus had told him repeatedly that on the third day he would rise again after his his death. And yet he's, even though he's been told it, he's not expecting it, but it's okay. Nobody else is either. Um. So after personally seeing the resurrected Jesus twice with the other disciples, he is now back in Galilee, and he's waiting to see Jesus again. And Jesus says, go before me into Galilee, and I'll meet you there. And so he is there, and he is waiting. Now, if you're like me, waiting is not the, you know, the thing I look forward to in my life. I don't like waiting in lines. I don't like taking a number. I don't like any of that. But Jesus says, I will meet you there. Some good things can happen while you're waiting. It doesn't look like any good thing is happening in the life of Peter. So after waiting a while and finding nothing happens, he returns to what he used to do and he says to some of his disciples, let's go fishing. Actually, he says, I'm going fishing. And the others say, I'll go with you. So he returns to his boat. Now, uh, you would say that that's... Uh, You know, it's something to do to fill in the time. Uh, This week I was reading uh, an account of a pastor who was groomed to take over a mega church in the Philadelphia area and uh in this you know it says that they brought him in specifically to take over from the retiring pastor and while he was in this interim period he was getting all sorts of accolades oh you're better than Andy Stanley you're better than you know uh, you know and it was getting to his head and yet at the same time when people were praising him the church was falling apart <laughs> and uh so he left that line He goes, "Mm, I think I'll go over this side again. He left to start a very small church. And as he left, he he took all of these feelings with him. And and he said, you know, the thing that I had never really experienced before and and that now just seems to drive my life is fear of failing again. Now, for those, we have some therapists in this crowd, and so I'm going to give you the eight-syllable word for fear of failure. Hold on. Okay, I gotta get a deep breath. Kakorakorakorathiophobia. I'm gonna try it again. Kakorathiophobia. Kakorathiophobia. It's the fear of failure. And so for a while, you know, he said, "That's that's it. I'm just gonna put myself in a position where I I, I can't fail." And, and so he decided to do that. And then he said, I also need some help. So he saw professional counselor deals just with ministers. Why? Why are there counselors that just deal with ministers? Ask me after church. Okay. <laughs> but we need them. We need them. And, and so uh, after fi- figuring out, he goes in one time. He says, you know what? It's not failure that I'm afraid of. It's the rejection that comes with failure. People don't look at me the same anymore. And then he goes a few more times and he goes, it's not failure. It's not the fear of failure. It's not the rejection of other people. What really gets to me is the shame I carry around for failing. People had built me up. And I'm ashamed that I could not live up to their expectations. Now, if you've never failed, and I'm sure some of you never have, I want you to know that as your pastor, this pastor nailed it. He really got down to what people are most uh, afraid of in their lives. And it's the hate being ashamed of yourself and your performance. So what do you do when you hit the spot? For Peter, you know, we have in our in, in business uh, lingo, we have this thing called the Peter Principle where you you only rise to the level uh, where you are no longer effective and then you tend to stay there ineffective? I want to give you the Peter process. The Peter process is what Jesus took Peter through so that he could be restored once again to his ministry, even though he was ashamed at his performance. So there he is. He's back now in this place called Galilee at that sea. And, and John describes, he takes the whole last chapter to sort of describe this last uh, resurrection appearance to Peter personally. And it describes the process that he's going through. And those disciples are in Galilee, and now uh, uh, as they're waiting, nothing happens. So Peter says, I can't wait any longer. And he goes back to his previous career, and he's a fisherman again. And I guess he's a bit rusty because he can't catch a thing. And I think God's in this, by the way. <clears throat> Not just the fish. I think God's in this. So he's frustrated at his old trade. He's a failure at his new trade. <clears throat> What's left for him? Maybe see if he can walk on water again? I don't think so. So uh, any fisherman can have a bad day. Ask me. I've had I've had many. I've had one this week, okay? But it's more than ha- being rusty and having a bad night. Understand that fishing was the thing that he thought he could do best. But it's also fishing that Jesus had called him to leave so that he could be a fisher of men. So in this moment that occurs where Jesus comes to them on a lake, what is happening? What is happening to him is probably what should be happening to all of us when we feel like we're out of gas or we haven't performed well, especially as Christians. We're told to recall. You see... What had Jesus called him to in the first place? He had said in Mark 1.17, Come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And so, you know, that is what he had called to, been called to, and fishing is what he had left, and now he's finding himself back as if nothing ever happened. He has this idea of, okay, apostleship is out, but maybe I can go back to something that I thought I was pretty good at in the past. I, I, I performed fairly well, and yeah, I let a few swear words out, but my character was pretty good. But as he's on this lake, you have to remember that many significant moments occurred on that lake with Jesus. If you go through the Gospels, you'll find that it was on uh, fishing on this same lake that uh, Jesus calls him, and he says, Leave your career and now begin to fish for people. He, he calls him again. And, and and he says, no, don't just leave your career. But uh, you know, this is the place where I calmed the storm. And and you were in that boat. This is the place where I you saw me walking on water. I invited you to come out and join me. Uh, this is the place. Do you remember where we had talked about? You haven't caught anything all night. We did that before in Luke chapter five. And and and, and I, I told you go out to deep water and and just try one more time. And you reluctantly went there, Peter. And when you went there and you found out the fish were taking numbers to get into your net, uh, you were just so surprised. You looked at me and you realized there's deity that I'm in the presence of here. And you got down on your knees and you said, Lord, depart from me because I'm a sinful man. And in that first time of catching more fish than he deserved, Peter had it, I think, half right. Peter was right when he said, I'm a sinful man. And I hope that's not a hard thing for each of us to say. But Peter had it wrong if he thought Jesus was going anywhere. Jesus was staying. Jesus had crossed the line towards Peter. And he wasn't retreating. So, Jesus says this again to these disciples on that, you know, in his resurrected form. He says, throw your net on the right side of the boat and, and, and you'll find some. And sure enough, they throw it on the other side, but I imagine it was reluctantly. The, the net is full. Uh, the the fish seem to be ha- having their GPS out looking for a net that morning. And, and then um, uh, suddenly Peter is reminded, who else could do this? Oh, that significant moment we had before. It's Jesus. It's the Lord. Uh, Do you remember significant spiritual moments of your life? Now, let's talk about all the moments of your life. You probably remember births of your children or or deaths in your family or graduations or, or other great honors. But you've also had significant moments where you've had to say, God's in this. God's in this. He has shown himself, not intellectually, but he's shown himself experientially. And I cannot deny this. I remember the first selfish prayer I uttered as a five-year-old, and God said no. And I was disappointed for weeks. Why can't you match my socks to the same color? I'm on my way to school. I remember that stupid prayer. And God let me down. And I made him pay for years to come. I remember the first message that I listened to where I actually heard the gospel and responded to it. People had spoken it to me before, but I never really heard it. I wasn't in tune. I remember the first time I shared my testimony with my friend. And and I stammered through it, and it was a terrible presentation. But he said, Jim, God's doing something in you, and I see it. I remember God urging me at different times in my life to commitments. And I, I really believed it was God's spirit working in me to say, this is the direction I want you to go into. The latest one in the last two years was, you know, what should our giving be to this new facility next door? And, and I wanted it to be generous, but I didn't want it to be that generous. And God says, well, come on. You remember you said this back then? I go, Why did you have to remind me? Because God was in it. God is in it. God's in these moments and God is present. And so at this moment, Peter is able to hear from, from one of the other disciples, it's the Lord. And so he jumps out and he, and he goes, you know, he swims the, the last few yards while the other guys are bringing the fish in just to see Jesus. And it was at this moment where after we were recalling what God has done, now it is time to refill Peter. So Jesus yells out to him, come have breakfast. And none of the disciples, it says, dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. So he recalls, but now it's time to be refilled. And, and let me ask this question. How many meals each week do you eat alone? Just by yourself. How many meals alone? Um, or another question. How many meals do you eat each week with people, but it, you could be alone? You know what I mean? Okay, let's get this down. You know, let's let's hurry. We got you know a minute and thirty seconds, and I got to be on the road. Uh, Someone's there, but there's no sort of conversation. In the Hebrew world, um, inviting a person to eat with you is more than sharing your food. Um, Understand that a common meal was not, or a shared meal was not for satisfying hunger. It wasn't for nutritional sustenance i don't think the uh, any jew ancient jew ever looked on the back of the label of the unleavened bread and saw the carbs and fats and and you know all those grams on it and they didn't do that they didn't say oh no protein throw it away it was food a shared meal is a shared life i'm going to say that again a shared meal is a shared life a meal was not just a time to put food down the pie hole. A meal was a time to share your life with someone, with someone else. And if you think of it, over the period of three years in which Jesus and his disciples, including uh, Simon Peter, were together, how many meals did they share together? Now, yeah, sometimes there was no food. And so they skipped a meal. I, I understand that. And probably other times they were invited guests at a big celebration. And so a wedding or uh, you know, a Pharisee would invite them over or, or, or Zac- Zacchaeus or something like that. So it was a big celebration. That's okay. But you take those out. And over three years, they probably ate almost all their food together. Now he says, come have breakfast with me. Come have breakfast. Let's eat together again. Is that beautiful or what? And there's the bread waiting for them and the fish on the coals and they bring more fish. (coughs) Uh, Jesus wasn't going to multiply the fish again, okay? But there were more fish there and they just sat and they ate. What is going on here is they are reliving cherished relationships. This breakfast on the beach has Peter reliving the meals, the multiple meals they shared together. Times when they were not trying to solve the world's problem or talking deep theology. They were just sharing their lives as they shared their food. And for Peter, who knows deeply uh, or how deeply he had let Jesus down, this invitation was a wordless apology or a wordless forgiveness you understand? A wordless forgiveness. Let let me explain. Um, uh, In 1975, Barb and I were newly married, and I was leaving one ministry at at the church that had really helped me grow up in the Lord, and we were moving to Australia. And uh, uh, they had asked me in in that last year to lead the the middle school and the high school group, and uh, it was a hard year, and not... you wouldn't call it really successful. I wouldn't call myself a failure, but it was just really, really hard. And you know when things get down, you say things that you wish you wouldn't have said. It's other people's fault. Oh, you don't say that? Okay, good. I I always knew that I was stepping up when I came to this church. Um, and, and, And I even said to one of the other pastors something about the senior pastor. And as soon as I said it, I walked away and said, that's a stupid thing to say, but he'll never hear it. So he invites me out to lunch a week before I go. Barb's not there yet, I don't think, and, or I think it's just me. And And we're talking, and, and I said, you know, we probably won't have lunch again. I don't know how long I'm going to be in Australia, but we probably won't get this opportunity. I said, okay. And he says... And just goes through a list of things where he said, Jim, I've been watching you. Here's what I've seen God do in your life. I'm close to tears because I love the affirmation, but close to tears because of what I said about him. And he never said, here's what I heard about you. Here's what you said about me. He never said it. I know he probably heard it. He had big shoulders. He, he could, you know, he had it all the time. But it was a wordless meal of forgiveness. And so when Barb and I returned, we would look him up, he would look us up, and it was like those things were no longer an issue. Isn't that a beautiful thought of what a meal can do? Where you go back to the cherished relationships that you've had in life. Now we've got to get to this passage in Acts uh, I'm sorry in John chapter 21 because now it gets a bit technical once that he is recalled and you know and recalls what's happened in the past and he's refilled with this meal it is time for one to one talk and so uh, no longer with the disciples Jesus pulls Simon Peter aside, and it looks like they're walking down the beach. And John apparently is following them, but not within earshot. He just doesn't want to be left out. And so the two were there together. And and look at this conversation. Uh, When they had finished eating, I'm in verse 15 of John 21. uh, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. And then Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. Third time, he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And now Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you and how poorly I do it. I added those words, okay? But they belong there. He's confessing his shallow love to Jesus. Is this shallow. Because I know what happened. Almost every scholar will tell you that Jesus asked that question three times because how many times did Peter deny he even knew Jesus? Three times. So it was like one covering each time that he had denied Jesus. But more than that, something else is going on here. And and as he says, let's talk, uh, uh, he wants to get to something really important. He wants not to have John measure his love because in a real way, John was saying, uh, I don't love you as I thought I did. My performance pretty much proves I don't love you as I thought I did. You know, that's why I love Peter. That's why I love him. I need a little honesty here. And I love that guy. So uh, Jesus accepts that shallow love. And then he gives to Peter a restored call back to the ministry. And you see the words he uses? He says, feed, shepherd, feed. Now, first he says, feed my lambs. And let's face it, lambs do need more attention than, than, than sheep. Uh, uh, many translations would say, now take care of my sheep, but it would say my little sheep, and and then uh, feed my sheep. He's saying feed, care for, or shepherd, or and feed. Each of these is saying, would you please get back to work? Would you please understand that I have not thrown you out? You have thrown you out. Now, would you please get back to caring for my flock? It's time to return to fishing for men and to caring for those that that you know that I have put in the flock. Those that trust in me, those who are in my flock. Peter, this is what you're going to do. But Lord, what do I have to tell them? What can I tell them that will make any difference? I mean, already all of Jerusalem knows what I did and how I denied you. There are times when we have to look at someone and say, and I've done this twice in my lifetime, you know, I really like you, but this is not the job for you. There's something different for you out there. Let's talk about how you're going to find it. And that's been hard to do. Uh, Donald Trump seems to take glory in saying on his reality show, you're fired. I don't like doing that. He doesn't care. He gets paid anyway. And they are fired because they do not perform and they do not work well with the team. Exactly what Peter had gone through. And in our world, we expect this. Peter expects this. He expects that he should be going back to fishing. But here's what Peter does not expect. When we fail God, God does not fire us. I'm going to say that again. When we fail God, God does not fire us. We may feel shame. We may feel rejection. But Jesus doesn't say, Oh, you know that line I drew? I'm stepping back. I've given up on you. You're a worthless bit of dead cells. We never hear that From him, he says, return to your call. This is the ministry I've given you. Now, you may not sense this morning that there's a return you need to make. In fact, let me do it this way. Why did you come to church this morning? Why did you come? I I can think of many reasons, but let me go through a few and let me go to the one that I hope you were thinking about. Uh, some of you come on a regular basis saying, feed me. And I will do my very best to give you God's word in a way that is applicable to your life. And so you leave feeling fed. That's important. Some of you will come to say, well, I, I really need to see a God bigger than me. I, I need to sing how great is our God and feel how great is our God. And hopefully you did that this morning too. Uh, maybe you came because you said, my kids really need this. Or maybe your spouse dragged you or your friend dragged you. I want you to know that's the first time I went to church in 10 years. My friend dragged me. I'm still ticked. Because it was deception. I get that. Can I go beyond that though? I've heard all of those things before. But what would God ever want? to do through you to help those in his flock what would ever, whatever would god want to do through you to help those in his flock i believe that if you are in christ he has a purpose for your life he does not say give up your career he does not say turn your back on your family but he says i have work for you In my flock. He has a purpose. And it's about his sheep. He never said, Peter, go back and take care of your flock. Every time he says, my lambs, my sheep, my sheep. Your job is to help me with my sheep. It's called a call. And in your faith in Jesus, I believe that in some way Jesus is saying there is an impact you're supposed to have. And Peter's still thinking the shame, the rejection, the failure. And he's trying to say no. It's not that. So in the last couple sentences where he talks to him, he talks about refocusing. What you need to do is to refocus and refocus on me as it should be. Uh, we, we know that one of the things that Peter did after saying this, um, you know, uh, Lord, you know, I love you. And, and then Jesus says, you know, come back and, and, and feed, my, feed my lambs again. He looked at John who was following him. And he said, but what about him? And, and it's like he's saying, you know, I'll take care of John. You don't have to worry about taking care of John. You follow me," he said it once. He said it twice. "You follow me." What I want you to do is to put your focus once again on following me. Let me read those, uh, verse eighteen and nineteen. "I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you were you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone will dress you and uh, lead you to where." You do not want to go. And Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Follow me. Follow me. Isn't that amazing? When it gets down to it, what are we looking at here? He's saying, I want you to renew the first things in your life. I want you to come back to what we originally had together. I want you to be aware that, you know, I haven't crossed this line when I crossed it over to you. And, and I expect that you're going to never cross that line and step back again either. Your job is to follow me. I want you to renew the first thing and the most important thing in your life. And we're told that for the rest of uh, Peter's life, he fed the flock and he followed the Lord. And, and, and it, at one time, uh, uh, w- when he was about to be executed and it was a crucifixion, uh, he, you know, he realized that he was going to have a death similar to his Lord, but he requested that I not have a death exactly like my Lord. So tradition tells us he has to be crucified upside down so no one would mistake him for Jesus. And he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified in the same way. Now, I've been told by people who have also not been to heaven, okay, that the people that, who are in heaven never will brag about their accomplishments. Instead, they will boast in Jesus. And Jesus will be the focus. Now, on this side of life, we're to help others also to boast in Jesus. And is there a better way to help people boast in Jesus than to recall the things that you wish you could have a do-over for. Can you think of a better way? And and In other words, you might talk about the glory of God, but you've got to leave yourself back in this. And and if someone would go to Peter and say, you know, Peter, I I made this commitment to God and I didn't follow through. I'm a terrible Christian. Peter could look at them and say, tell me about it. I've failed more deeply than you. I've disappointed myself more thoroughly than you have disappointed yourself. Now just follow Jesus. Isn't it amazing that in that last sort of personal resurrection appearance of Jesus there on the Sea of Galilee, that he takes the time to say the resurrection is also for failures. The heaven that I've promised to all who follow me is the same heaven, Peter, that you will have even though you failed me. I've come across some people in life that said, I'm going to write a book on failure. I'm so good at it. I could add a couple chapters, probably, of things that I wish I could do over again. But what it all gets down to is this resurrection appearance tells us that we can fail and we can follow again. Let's pray. Sometimes failure is losing interest, being distracted. We just get involved in other things, other people. Sometimes it's an emotional thing, sometimes it's a schedule thing. Sometimes it is a failure thing. Sometimes it is a fear thing. Think about if you were to do anything, Where you could say, at the end of your life, it was worth it. Can you think of anything better than having those at your bedside saying, well done, you followed Jesus. Not perfectly, but you followed him. Follow him. Recall those significant moments when you realized, experientially, God was there. Remember that it's a relationship, not a religion, where you're told to walk in fellowship with Jesus Christ. Understand that He has a purpose for you. You might have tried and felt like you didn't do well. well maybe you need to try again or find something else. But He's saying, "I've got sheep." Take part and remember the first thing and focus on the first thing. Follow me. Lord, how we love Peter. We don't want to be like him, but there's enough of us in him. When we see how you treat him, we understand this is how you treat us. And you showed yourself this one last time to him, speaking to him one-to-one, so that he could overcome his shame and serve you once again. What a great God you are. All of God's people said, "Amen." Amen.